1: We have another great visit from Timothy Brown of Football Archaeology as he discusses some of the early roots of the NFL Combine, an organization called Lesto, and the AFL Redshirt Draft. Tim's got the scoop coming up in just a moment.
0: This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron,
1: This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pig Pen, your portal of positive football history. And it is Tuesday. And once again, we have a friendly visit from our friend Timothy Brown of football archaeology. Uh, Tim, welcome back to the Pig Pen.
2: Uh, what's your name again? Darren? I don't know. I think, <laughs> I think.
1: <laughs> Did you uh, play a couple games without the helmet on, Tim? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, more than a few. More than a few. few? Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, Yeah. So hey, good. Good to be
2: back as always.
1: All right. Well, let's get to the topic at hand. Then, Uh, you know, one of your tidbits really caught my eye from mid-October. And it was on the American Football League from the 1960s. As a matter of fact, the 1965 AFL Redshirt Draft. And uh, you you talked about a couple things, and one of them was the Lesto Organization as well. And uh, I'd like to see if maybe you could have some discussion on that tonight.
2: Yeah, so, you know, this is one of those where I think in order to kind of set up the 65 Redshirt Draft in the AFL, there's just a whole lot of history that behind that. (laughs) So I'm going to, I'm going to double back, you know, uh, decades or so. Okay. (laughs) And, and so, um, you know, so part of this is just like, I, um, I'm always scouring eBay and some other places for score postcards, images, books related to football history. And but I'm mostly, I'm not necessarily looking for like this great item. Other I'm mostly looking for some kind of item that provides some context, some information or an image that tells me something about football uh, at a different time. And so one of the great sources is the Spalding's football guides, right? Mm -hmm. And so I've got like boatloads of those, both PDF versions that are, out of copyright so you can get them for free and then the ncaa offers free ones from 2000 on so i've got those and then i buy the books, you know in between and uh so i never spend much money on it. i buy them and so recently i was able to buy this 1965 afl uh guy similar to the the old spalding kind of guides. so i bought it really not knowing what's going to be inside that thing and so when I received it, I said 1965, but it was a 1967 guide, but it had information about the 65 draft. And anyway, so I'm leafing through the thing, and here it says 1965 redshirt draft, which at at that point I had never heard of before. Now, familiar with the NFL having a futures draft, and I understood what that was all about, but I hadn't heard redshirt version. So you know, what the AFL did was, um and even, you know, going back even the NFL, back in 1925, the Bears signed Red Grange right after his season. So the day after he completed his last game at Illinois, he was playing for the Bears. And that violated the norms of the time. And so, you know, created all kinds of turmoil. So the the NFL agreed we're not going to draft any, or we're not going to sign anybody until their graduate until their class has graduated. Right. So you get to sign them their senior season. And so everything was fine until like six when all of a sudden the, what we now think of as the red shirt process came into being. So a college player could, del- could delay for a year his playing Um And, you know, get four, you know, basically be in college for five years, but play in four, which then changed the dynamic of your signing, you know, your original class versus your graduating class, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so everything, nobody paid attention to it until like in early 60s, I think it was, maybe it was late 50s. NFL teams started signing what they called the futures contract. So a guy who redshirted they would draft him in a normal draft order, just the normal draft they'd sign him, or they'd draft him and basically stake a claim to a guy like Donnie Anderson or some top-notch junior who they knew they wouldn't be able to sign for another year because it, it, he was going to keep playing, you know, he had another year of eligibility left. The, the AFL, on the other hand, um, what they ended up doing was they said instead of just having it integrated with the normal draft we're going to have a separate red shirt draft so they drafted their normal guys and then they draft they then they had a separate draft of red shirts right they could basically stake their claim to these players um but the other you know I mean two other cool things about it was just one was that they at the time in 65 the draft occurred on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. You know, now it's like April 23rd or some crazy date. And, but it back gets then, later
1: every year, I think, too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It, it's going to be in December pretty soon. Right. And, but back then it was like neither the NFL nor the AFL, because they were still rival leagues, wanted the other one to get ahead of each other. So they held it on the same day, right after the college season ended, so that, you know, if they had the chance to sign somebody the next day, they did it. Um, so anyway, it was just one of those things we just don't even, it's not even part of our thinking anymore. But with two rival leagues at the time who both had money, you know, it was a big deal. Um, yeah, so, anyways, I mean, it's it, in this list, just you know, had a bunch of guys, you know, most of them I have no idea who they were. You know, maybe in 1966, I would have recognized their names, but. Not anymore, but there were still, you know, there were a handful of you know, really pretty top-notch guys. Um, which I guess brings me to this whole less going uh issue, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, until um until about that time, each team scouted independently. So they'd each send their guys out, and some of them didn't do much scouting at all, and they were terrible at it. Um and others, you know, they were pretty proficient at it. Um, so send their guys out to the colleges, measure them, weigh them, time them, all that kind of stuff. Um, and a couple of teams, the Lions, Eagles, and Bears, so less or Lions, Eagles, and Steelers. Steelers. Was less than them. <laughs> Uh, so you know, they combined their scouting resources or part of their scouting resources. So that's where we get the word combine they combined uh, their early scouting resource and it became more like those were the guys who went out and did all the preliminary work to to evaluate who should even be considered and then the serious examination of who's who that that you know came more you know that was left to more higher end scouts within each individual team and then you know there other combines came together and eventually they all joined into the one combine, which we now know today. Right. But um so yeah, that's kind of the, the origins of, so that this futures draft kind of existed around the same time as the combine got started.
1: So all that, and it turned into the underwear Olympics. That's uh... a, <laughs> Commonly, what they call it. Yeah, I, I mean, it's now. really
2: amazing. You know, the I, you know, I've written about this elsewhere, but the, the, there was, uh, you know, there's been times like the the Redskins, I think it was, they drafted the same guy two years in a row. He was a USC or Cal play Cal, you know, a guy named named Russo. But you know, a lot of these teams, they would just draft guys based off of what they read in the newspaper or like not the Street and Smiths, but, you know, some version of that of their time. And they drafted this guy, and he was a junior. So he wasn't eligible for the draft, but they used a first-round draft on the guy. So then they draft him the second the next year, and he says, I don't want to play NFL. I'm joining the Navy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just the the level of scouting and insight. I mean, so much was just, just based on – hey, I've got this buddy who's a coach out at Pacific Lutheran or at Texas A&M or whatever school, and he says this kid's a player. So you trust that t- rather than, like, on-site physical evaluations. And, you know, then he had Paul Brown bringing the 40-yard dash and, you know, to really more technical evaluations and cone drills and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's just – it's a different world.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting when you when they publish uh, some of the, um, like the radial charts that they have on these guys, where they have you know, a radial charts sort of a round chart and the, the points yeah. go out in different directions, almost like a clock, and you see where these guys are rating on it. And it's I mean, it's really kind of a, a unique uh, monitoring and, and uh, calibrating system to to try to judge a player's proficiency. It's a kind of kind of a cool thing. So,
2: yeah, just well, and you know one one thing I I commented on in the the little article about the about the redshirt draft is that the heaviest player in the redshirt draft was two hundred and seventy pounds.
1: Jeez. You know,
2: <laughs> and you know that's just kind of unimaginable today. You know, because you know that. 270 isn't going to get you very far on a defensive line or especially an offensive line. But back then that, you know, that was a huge man because very few teams did any lifting at all. Right.
1: Yeah. That's... So <laughs> It's, it's amazing. We, we were just uh, talking uh, with Oz Davis, who's a fellow podcaster. We were doing a program on the 1924 game with uh, the University of Chicago and with Illinois when, and how Chicago was going to defend Red Grange. And uh, he miss Alonzo Staggs said he was going to put two of his biggest guys at him. And one guy was 199 pounds and the other guy was like 204 pounds. And that was, how they were going to stop range. It's just amazing how, uh, you know, mankind has sort of grown and through nutrition and exercise and, you know, genetics and uh, the size uh, people we have playing football today. It's amazing.
2: Yeah. And I mean, a lot of it is also just, you know, kind of a selection process and, and the different techniques, you know, if, if you, you know, When teams played, uh, when you play single platoon, there's no way you could have 300 pound people. You know, I mean, half the guys in the NFL could not survive in that game because they just—they're too big, they're too heavy, they're not—they're not in shape. And so, I mean, even like you look at rugby, international rugby players, top end athletes, and the biggest guys by you know huge guys in that sport are 270 you know and they're kept but they look more like tight end the end you know sort of guys not like offensive tackles right because they got to run the whole game right so (laughs) you know uh but anyways i mean it's uh i mean to take nothing away from the athleticism of of an nfl offensive tackle you know but it's just it's a selection process that is not it's enabled by the rules that are in place today not the rules that were in place the 1940s or 20s or whatever
1: Uh, well definitely some fascinating stuff and we really appreciate you you're digging into uh, that it's a little bit more uh modern than what we've we've talked to you about before being in the 60s but (laughs) respect and think about how long ago the 60s was it's a kind of shocking uh, to me. But uh, a a time period that uh, i was alive in but don't remember much but i was alive then uh so, Tim, why don't you, while we're talking about your tidbits, why don't you uh, uh, give us, uh, the listeners, an idea how they can enjoy your tidbits uh, on a daily basis?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, Drill Temple, if you're interested in, in listening, um, so obviously, if you're if interested in listening, then subscribe to this podcast. Um, if you're interested in reading, then, uh, you know, I'm at uh, footballarchaeology.com. Uh, you can find me there. It's, it's a Substack. stack uh, you know, application, and you can, at least for now, find me on Twitter. <laughs> we'll see what happens in the long term with her. But anyways, for now, I'm on Twitter, uh, but under the same name, Football Archaeology. And uh so however you prefer to consume, have at it
1: all right tim brown football archaeology uh folks we have that information on the show notes of this podcast so if you you can't get to a pencil and write it down right now it's not convenient don't worry come back and check out the show notes or go to on pigskindispatch.com or footballarchaeology.com and you'll find out how to join that tim brown thank you very much and uh, we'll talk to you again next week hey thank you again darren thank you
0: the rose bowl The game that inspired the college football bowl season has a long and storied history. The stadium itself is 100 years old, and in celebration of it, Pigskin Dispatch is assembling some of the top historians and authors to share the memories, people, and events that make the granddaddy of them all the special game that it is.
1: That's right. Join me, Darren Hayes, on the Pigskin Dispatch podcast here on Sports History Network or your favorite podcast provider from the end of November all the way to the day of the big game.
0: Rose Bowl history from pigskindispatch.com.
1: That's all the football history we have today, folks. Join us back tomorrow for more of your football history.
0: on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch Podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network.